0: So we're continuing in our summer series this morning, our summer series of messages where we're looking at the expansion of Christianity in the early church in that first century. And we've been looking specifically at Acts, the book of Acts, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and then next week we will finish with chapter 12. And this week we're looking at the end of chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'd invite you to turn to uh, chapter 11 of the book of Acts uh, starting at verse 19. The book of Acts is found after what are referred to as the four gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of Jesus's ministry and His death and His resurrection. And then the book of Acts continues the story of what happened in those days following the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the foundation of the early church. If you, can't have a, if you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to take one that's on the blue ra- uh, the chair racks. It's a blue Bible and Acts 19, or Acts 11, verse 19 is on page 1170. So if you're able, let me invite you to stand as I read this. It's a reminder that this is God's Word and it's a way that we show respect to it. And when I'm finished reading, I encourage you to respond with gratitude, uh, not to me because I did such a great job reading, but gratitude that we have the Word of God uh, by saying, thanks be to God as I finish. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. What is, a, what is a Christian? Says that this is the first time they were called Christians. What is a Christian? Or actually, more specifically, not so much how does one become a Christian. How do you recognize a Christian? If you were to run across a Christian, how would you, how would you know? It's actually, it's, I mean, it's a deceptively simple question in a sense. You know, what's a Christian? We use the word all the time, so it ought to be something where we'd, we'd kind of have an answer. Yeah, a Christian, I'd recognize a Christian by, and then we kind of wonder, like, what would I say? But it's an extremely important question, and it's an incredibly relevant question because actually the number of people around the world who use that word to describe themselves continues to grow. According to a report, the end of 2020, the Center for Global Christianity out of Gordon Comwell uh, Seminary, more than 2.5 billion people globally defined themselves, identified themselves by that term, Christian, used that to say, yes, I am a Christian. That's just over 32%, almost a third of the world's population. And this research center, an evangelical research center, projects that share, that percentage to rise to about 35% by the year 2050, over the next 20 to 30 years. Now, those numbers, by the center's own admission, they aren't applying any theological test or criteria. They're just sort of asking people, would you use that term to describe yourself? Would you be a, a Christian? And so you'd have a wide range of churches, a wide range of beliefs within those who call themselves a Christian, and not all of them would probably meet the biblical criteria that we would That we would put down but that's actually kind of the point and that's kind of shows us it is a question worth asking because the number of people called christians by someone is large and a third of the world's population and it's growing so it's a useful exercise to ask ourselves the question do they look like the name that they say and the book of acts is a great place for us to do that because the book of acts is all about the earliest followers of jesus working out in real time what it meant to be a follower of jesus and the passage we just read, like I said, for the very first time ever, uses that term Christian as a reference to a follower of Jesus. So what I want to do with this very relevant question is briefly kind of review with you the scene, what happens here in Acts chapter 11, 19 to 30 that we just read. And then I want to list like seven characteristics of these followers of Jesus that kind of jumped out at me as I, as I read it this week that I think will help us with that question, how do you recognize a Christian? So first, let's, re- let's review the scene and what's going on here. Luke, who is the author of Acts, is returning to the same language that he used at the beginning of chapter 8, where we started the series back in, back in June. And back in Acts chapter 8, we read that many of the disciples of Jesus, many of the followers of Jesus, were scattered throughout the region because a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. Now what Luke is doing here at the end of chapter 11 is he's returning to that storyline and he tells us, Acts chapter 11:19, 19, that some of these scattered folks, and the scattering was referenced back at the beginning of chapter 8, but some of these scattered folks, he says, some of them went to Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, that area. Some of them went to Cyprus, which is a Greek island about 100 miles off the coast into the Mediterranean Sea. And some of them went to the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch was a very interesting city, capital of the Roman province of Syria, a center of commercial power with about a half a million people, an absolutely humongous city for that time. It was probably the third largest city in the Roman world, perhaps in the whole world, behind only Rome, which was number one, about a million people in Rome probably at that time, and Alexandria in Egypt, number two, and Antioch was three. And because of its location and because of its its business kind of culture, its commercial kind of purpose. It was a real cultural melting pot. It was founded by Greeks. It was now controlled by the Romans. It was in a region of the world with large numbers of ethnic Arabs. And this would actually prove really important to what Luke is talking about here in Acts chapter 11 because this was a thoroughly Gentile city. And I mean thoroughly Gentile. In other words, this... This was not. We've seen the gospel over the last you know, couple of months and the last couple of chapters in Acts. We've seen it go and be received by people who were Gentiles, but these are not Samaritans here who were ethnically half-Jewish. This is not an, an Ethiopian that we read about earlier, and, uh, and the Ethiopian finance minister who was already reading the, the Jewish prophets. He was reading the Jewish scriptures. He wanted to know about the, the God of the Bible. This is not a Roman centurion that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. This is not Cornelius, who was already referred to as a God-fearer. He was worshiping, he was praying to the God of of Israel. No, in Antioch, it was different. In Antioch, you had these followers of Jesus, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, it says, who began to preach the Lord Jesus to the Hellenists. And we're not talking about Greek-speaking Jews. We're talking about thoroughly Gentile, Greek-speaking non-Jews. And in verse 21, it says the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. In other words, these thoroughly Gentile, Greek-speaking non-Jews, who probably (laughs) had no kind of initial interest in this God of Israel, this kind of local regional deity in their minds, they became followers of Jesus as well. Now, this was news. This was different. And the news got back to Jerusalem. And so what they did was they dispatched this guy named Barnabas to go check it out. And he was the perfect guy for the job. Barnabas was an ethnic Jew. He was a Levite, in fact, so his Jewish credentials were, were stellar. But he was also from Cyprus, so he was familiar with what it was like to live among the Gentiles. was probably a, a Greek speaker himself and was familiar with Greek and Roman culture. And this was similar to the way that the church in Jerusalem sent out Peter and John to Samaria back in chapter 8 when the Samaritans were starting to, to follow Jesus. The church in Jerusalem said, it seems like God's at work, but we should, we should go check it out, see what's really happening. And so they sent someone. They sent Peter and John to Samaria. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And Barnabas goes and it says that he saw the grace of God and he was glad. But then he assesses the situation and he knows that the new church is, is going to need some help. He's there. People are coming to Jesus, but these are thoroughly untaught. These are thoroughly Gentile people. And he says to himself in a great deal of humility, he says, I know just the guy. I know just the guy. There's this guy, and his name is Saul. He's a smart guy. He's a gifted guy, and he's in Tarsus, and I think he'll be just the guy for this church here in Antioch. So Barnabas goes to, to, to Tarsus to get this guy named Saul, and he brings him to Antioch for a year, it says in verse 26, and they pour themselves into this church, into this brand new church, teaching them, training them, encouraging them. And that's when it says at the end of verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now there you go. The first recorded use of the term. Followers of Jesus have been called lots of things up to this point. They've been called disciples, been referred to as saints, believers, brothers, witnesses. But now they're called Christians. And there is actually, you kind of read some of the scholars on this, there's a little bit of disagreement among the scholars and the commentators as to what was intended by it. It literally means Christ ones, ones of Christ. And you'll often hear some people kind of say that the term was originally a term of derision. In other words, it wasn't a compliment. You know, so in other words, they kind of say like, you know, you're a Christ one, but you say it with a sneer, it's Christ ones, like that, kind of like that, right? Maybe, maybe that's how it was said, maybe not. Other commentators point out that it might not have, intended to be, it might not have been intended to be derogatory, it might just have been descriptive, and people didn't know what to call them, right? Because up to that point in the ancient world, deities were associated with an ethnic region, an ethnic group. And so, if you were an Israelite, you worship this God. And if you were a Greek, you worship those gods. And Romans worship those gods. And everybody kind of had sometimes even their own individual cities. And so, it was easy to kind of give them names because the name of their city or the name of their nation or the name of their ethnic group, they kind of tied in with the God they worship. But not here. This is different. What do we call them? Because it's like, I mean, you know, there's some Greeks, there's some Romans, there's some Arabs, there's some Jews. Like, what what do we call those people? And so, they just kind of, they, Called him Christ ones. Some people say it wasn't necessarily a negative, it was just a, it was just a description. H- Henry Ironside was a prominent Canadian American Bible teacher in the early 1900s. He was traveling in China one time and he found that they kept introducing him when they came to a group or he was speaking to a group and they were translating for him. They kept introducing him, to, uh, him as Yasu Yan. Yasu Yan. And it's Cantonese. Yasu is Jesus, Yan is man. And they were just introducing him as this is the Jesus man like you to meet Jesus man here he is and so whether you're being called a Christ one or a Jesus, uh, Jesus man and whether that's derogatory or it or it's just descriptive probably just depends on the tone with how you're saying it right it's not necessarily not necessarily bad which is why the term ended up sticking and was relatively quickly adopted the followers of Jesus and the church became known as became known as Christians and this is the first instance of where that's recorded now it became also, not just the first time, it became their primary identity, which is another way that you can understand the word first, can't you? It says in verse 26 that they were first called Christians in Antioch, and it likely does mean, at the very least, that they were called Christians for the very first time in Antioch. But it also could mean, which is also, which is also absolutely true, that they were called Christ ones first of all. In other words, primarily they were called Christians first in Antioch, huge city, people of all kinds of cultures, all kinds of ethnicities, and their identity was not first their, I- their ethnicity, not first their city of origin, it was first Christ. It superseded everything else. Before they were known as Jewish, before they were known as Roman, before they were known as Greek or Arab, they were known as Christians. They were Christians first. So that's the story. Which brings us back to the original questions. These people, they didn't know what to do with them. They gave them this descriptor of Christ ones. But how would you recognize them? How would they have said, okay, well, this is a, this is a Christian? And so I'm talking, I'm thinking about this earlier and I'm, this week. And I'm making a list. Sometimes that's what I do. It's just kind of like, let me just make a list of the things that I'm seeing here. And a lot of times I'll boil that down and I'll put it under a couple of summary points for you or whatever. And kind of group things into categories. But this week I just, well, I, let me just give them a list. Let's just go through the list. Seven characteristics that I kind of, kind of jumped out at me that fill in some of what the people in Antioch would have observed. So I thought I'd just share the list with you. It's in the bulletin if you want to follow along. First one, how do you recognize a Christian? Well, a Christian submits to God's sovereignty. In other words, Christians put themselves under the authority of Jesus. Now this starts with coming to faith in Jesus in the in the first place, right, you see that in the preaching to the Gentiles in Antioch by the men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Verse 20, it says, they preached what? What did they preach? They preached the Lord Jesus. Now, this is just a summary, kind of, <laughs> of what they were preaching. It's not like that; these were the only words they used, that they would just go up to somebody and say, the Lord Jesus, and then they'd walk away. No, it's a, it's a summary. It's a concept. But what, what does that mean, though? What was it referring to? The gospel message that Jesus is that Jesus is Lord, that there is this man who is also God, who came to earth, and he's in charge of all, and he died, and he rose again, and he is sovereign over all, and you should submit yourself to him. I, I sometimes kind of use this shorthand. If you're looking for like a quick summary statement, like, you know, what is, what is a Christian? Well, I, I sometimes kind of say a Christian is someone who knows who Jesus is, understands why he came, and is prepared to follow him whatever the cost knows who Jesus is, understands why he came, and is prepared to follow him whatever the cost. Now, the first two parts of that, knowing who Jesus is and understanding why he came, lots of people can do that. Even Satan and the demons understand that. They know who Jesus is. They actually understand why he came. What they're not prepared to do is submit themselves to to his authority, to follow him whatever the cost. Now, that's what a Christian is, and they preached Jesus as Lord. So a Christian is someone who puts themselves under God's sovereignty, under his rule. And the application here is not only just simply kind of obedience to what God commands in our personal life, that's true, we talked some about that last week, but it's also humble submission to what God is up to in the world around us. Think about this more broadly for, for a second in terms of the history of of christianity it's not as if there weren't questions probably among these jewish christians from jerusalem it's not as if they didn't have questions about what god was doing about what he's up to but it is remarkable that barnabas and saul and along with them the other leaders of the of the the jewish leaders of the church they followed god as he moved and transitioned the geographic center of the outreach of the church from jerusalem to the city of antioch antioch would become the major primary mission sending city of the first century It's remarkable humbleness as they humility as they place themselves under god's sovereignty as he worked out his plan we need that same kind of humility today as the geographic center continues to shift as it has shifted throughout history from jerusalem to antioch to europe to america to around the world and today it continues to shift right sometimes it's 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 interesting and some sometimes christians are surprised particularly christians you know in 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 our country are surprised to hear statistics like i quoted from the center for the study of global christianity that continue that projects a continued growth in christians around the world that, that the number of christians over the next 20 or 30 years are the number of people who would that that's going to continue to grow and we kind of say really It's surprising because, because, well, it's it's surprising sometimes because there's no statistical growth that's predicted for Europe or for the United States, and we are very, just it's a nature, we're very Euro-American kind of centered. But since 2000, over the last 20 years, the, the most significant growth in the church has been in Africa, it's been in Asia, it's been in Central and South America, and that is projected to continue. And that might not be our culture, might not be our ethnic group. But like Barnabas and Antioch, if we're Christians, it should not, be, not only be something that we accept, it should, it should be something that excites us as we look around the world and we see God on the move. So you can recognize and you can spot a Christian when he is submitting to God's leading, personally and globally, submitting to it, submitting to his sovereignty. Now, second characteristic that I saw, evangelism. Right? Think about the importance of what we read. Generations of Gentiles who put their faith in the Lord Jesus are now experiencing an eternity of joy in heaven and they owe their eternal destiny in a human sense to these men of Cyprus and Cyrene who decided that they were not just going to share the the gospel of Jesus with other Jews, but they were going to share it with Gentiles as well, who didn't just consider the news about Jesus to be a personal thing, to be an ethnic thing, but they considered it news to be shared with people who at first blush might not seem interested. You have that? You ever have kind of in your mind, like, you know, who would be? You no, know, they would never be interested in Christianity. This person seems like they would be kind of interested. I'll, I'll talk to them, but, but these people, they, they don't really seem like it, so I'm not going to talk to them. You can, you can recognize a Christian because they think the message about Jesus is a big deal. And because they think that every person they encounter, every human in their lives is an eternal being created in God's image, Whose eternal destiny hinges on their relationship with Jesus. I told you. I told you in the past. Um, it might have been a couple of years ago. The story of Pelle Lindberg. Pelle Lindberg was a Swedish-born hockey goalie in the 1980s. The Philadelphia Flyers, which is you know the team. I mean, if I rooted for a hockey team, that would have been the one growing up that I rooted for. And, but it's embedded in my mind because Pelle Lindberg was killed in a horrific car accident down the road from where I lived when I was a he was just 26 years old, I think. I told that story before, but I don't know if I told you about Bob Froes. Bob Froes was the backup goalie on that Philadelphia Flyers team in 1985, backup to this young, upstart, superstar, Pelly Lindbergh. And Bob Froes tells the story about how one afternoon, Pelly Lindbergh and all the team, they were gathered in the Flyers locker room and they had a TV on and a Christian preacher came on the television. And was preaching about something, and Pelly Lindbergh turned to Bob Froes because he knew he knew he was a church going man. That's what he would have understood Froes to have been. And he said to him, Hey, Frosty. That's what they called him. His name was Froes. Kind of cute, right? They called him Frosty. They said, Hey, Frosty, what's a Christian? Damn, there you go. What, is, what did he say? Froes said he froze. He froze. He literally froze. He said he made a joke, he changed the subject. That was the last time the subject came up about Christianity with Pelly Lindbergh before Pelly Limberg drove his 930 turbo Porsche into a wall in front of an elementary school down the street from where I lived. Bob Froze has never forgotten that time when he wished he had opened his mouth, but didn't. Doesn't mean that Bob Froze wasn't a Christian that day in the locker room, but it does mean that he didn't look like one that day. Because you can recognize a Christian when he believes the news about Jesus is so good and so important that it's worth sharing, even if it might be an embarrassing situation. Next characteristic, accountability. The church in Antioch was formed with the help of a leader sent by the established church in Jerusalem and a Bible teacher from Tarsus. The church in Antioch didn't form on its own. It formed with help from other churches from other Christians connected to each other. Then, as the story continues to unfold in Acts, Antioch becomes the sender of missionaries to other churches, forming this network, this connection of churches in the region that are accountable to one another. Christians and churches are not independent and we shouldn't pretend that we are. And you can recognize a Christian when they recognize that. Round numbers in the research that you kind of looks at can can vary, but directionally speaking, something like 70% of Americans would identify as Christians, but less than 30% of them attend church on any kind of regular basis. And that's a huge disparity, and there could be a, vi- a variety of reasons why that you know why why someone you know might call themselves a Christian and not attend church on a regular basis. And it doesn't mean that you have to, that that attending church makes you a Christian. It doesn't. But if one is serious about submitting to the Lord Jesus thing, which is definitional to being a Christian, then it ought to follow that as a follower of Jesus, you become accountable and connected with what that Jesus called his bride. You can recognize a Christian because he orients his life not around convenience, but around a community of people with whom he has a shared identity and a shared mission. Next characteristic, encouragement. Barnabas wasn't his real name, you know. It was a nickname. His real name was Joseph. In Acts chapter 4, it says that they called him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. They called him the encourager. must have been like that. And you can kind of see, when he gets to Antioch, you can see it. It says, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, he said, Guys, this is awesome. This is great. I am am so excited for you. Let's keep it going. God's faithful. Let's keep pressing forward. He's at work. I can see it. He's at work in you. He's at work in this this church and in this city. Let's let's keep it going. I can help. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Somebody who's just, just an encourager. It's a magnet. It's infectious. Charles Clark is a guy who worked as a janitor for more than 25 years at a Texas high school. Clean, scrubbed, picked up after people's messes. But that's not how he was known among the boys of that rough and tough high school in Texas. All the boys who were in danger of falling through the cracks because he was known to them as an encourager. He was known to them as the one who was always able to listen, always listen, always love. One student says, I can tell this guy anything and he'll give me his honest opinion. He's wise and he's loving. Charles Clark said that was his mission. He said they would never had a man tell them that he loves them before. That's my job. It's infectious. Encouraging others doesn't make you a Christian. But when you see it happening, it does help you recognize one. Next characteristic, strategy. Now, we've already talked a little bit about this. Barnabas had a plan. He went and got Saul. They taught. They discipled. They looked at the future. They kind of said, this is what we're going to do. Right? This is a a great opportunity. People from, from, from Antioch, they go everywhere. The missionary possibilities, they work really well from a city like this. Right? But we're going to need some good teaching. Let's go get a good teacher. I know a guy. He knows, the old, he knows the Jewish scriptures backwards and forwards better than anyone I've ever met. His name's Saul. I'm going to go get him. I'm going to bring him. We're going to do like a year kind of intensive, and then we're going to work from there. It was all under God's sovereignty, of course. They submitted to his leading, but they thought. They, 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 they planned, and that's not a bad thing. If we're followers of a God who plans and who executes his plan then we should reflect his image, right? We've talked about that here at Calvary. We've talked about how we've, you know, we've budgeted money to do things like, you know, conduct a site plan. Okay, what can we do? What are the possibilities? And we'll talk more about that kind of stuff. But, but thinking about the next generation, kind of saying like, okay, 68 years, God is faithful. That's great. That's awesome. What's next? Under God's sovereignty and submitting to his leading? But we plan because God's a planner. We're doing that. And that's how you can recognize a Christian. Now next, suffering. We don't know, like I already said, we don't know if the term Christian was, a meant, was meant originally as a term of derision or not. Many people believe that it was, but we do know that by accepting the title of a Christ one, right, or a Jesus man, by accepting that title, you accept that Jesus, regardless of how that term was originally intended, you accept that Jesus was a guy who was treated with derision. And that as a result of that, by bearing His name, we might be as well. And we shouldn't consider it beneath us, and it shouldn't surprise us when it happens. In fact, our suffering should be, could be, ought to be an opportunity for us to point to Jesus and be used by God in that way. You can recognize a Christian that way. When even in the midst of their suffering, they use it as an opportunity to point to the one who is supreme and more important than anything that they might have lost in their suffering. It's a, um, it's a good reminder to us what the church around the world is. The church continues to grow in places and grow at exponential rates in some, in some places. In December 2019, Pastor Wang Yi, who was the senior pastor of the Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, He was arrested, along with a hundred others, members of his church, arrested for leading an unauthorized church. And anticipating that this might happen and accepting that it was always a possibility, he had written a letter to his congregation and to the world that was to be released if he was detained for greater than 48 hours. And it's a word that is a word for not just his church, but for us too. He talked about the authority, the communist government in China, and he said for all of the for all of the hideous realities, for all of the unrighteous politics and the arbitrary laws of the government, all they do in taking away my freedom is manifest the cross of Jesus Christ. Manifest the fact that the true hope in a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. Suffering doesn't make you a Christian. But allowing your suffering to be a witness to something far more supremely valuable, that's how you can recognize one. Now finally, generosity. We haven't really looked closely at the last section of Acts 11, verses 27 to 30, but we read it. You remember what what happens? You look at what it says. A great famine breaks out in, in Jerusalem. This could have been one of several famines that are historically recorded during the reign of Claudius, probably around 45, 46, 47 A.D., but it's what's interesting and what's fascinating is who steps in to help the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch. Now this seems it almost it we, we can't just pass this by because it almost seems relatively kind of ho hum today because we see this kind of thing all the time, right? you have some kind of natural disaster, something happens and and uh, and you don't have to you don't you don't even have to be part of a church for this to happen today right? Fundraisers, GoFundMe, relief concerts, the old-fashioned telethon, right? This kind of stuff happens all the time. But what we don't understand and what we don't fully appreciate is it didn't then. This is probably the first recorded instance in the ancient world of anything like this happening. And this is the way that Christianity began to rewrite world history. Hospitals, schools, Care for the poor, care for the widow, care for the orphan. They became markers of what happened when Christians came to town. To such a degree that today, it has so become a part of the the culture. We don't even recognize or remember where it came from. Caring for others does not make you a Christian, but it is how you recognize one. So those are seven things. Now, how do we bring it all together? It's much too simplistic to just kind of leave it as a long list of things to do because if you just simply, if you just simply look at it and maybe feel a little bit guilty and kind of say, oh, I don't know, all right, well, I'm going to try harder. I'll try harder. I'll pick two or three of these and that's what I'm going to concentrate on. Maybe just pick one this week and you kind of make a plan. I'm just going to try harder. Like, it, it's not going to work because you're going to fail quickly. And what you're going to do, if you just kind of simply make it about you and say, I'm going to try harder, is you're going to disconnect yourself from the very term that you say you're trying to represent. You're going to, you're going to disconnect yourself from the Christ who makes you the Christ one. You have to remember that you're a Christ one. And if you do that, you remember that it actually isn't your effort at the end of the day that you're relying on to be all these kinds of things. Right? Those things become the... The effect of having recognized that Jesus is actually the one who does these things first. Because before you are any of these things, Jesus is all of them. Think about this. Just run through the list real quick with me, right? Sovereignty. Now, Jesus, of course, is the sovereign God himself. But as the son of God in human nature, he showed us what humble submission looks like. He's prayed in the garden, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will, right? He showed us. Evangelism, Jesus cared about human suffering and during his ministry, he cured the sick, he raised the dead, he fed the hungry, but his mission was to preach the euangelion, to preach the gospel. For God so loved the world, he said, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That was Jesus. We can't be the evangelist until we see him first as the evangelist. Now, accountability. Jesus has never been alone, Ever think about that? As the eternal Son of God, He is one God in perfect relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descends and the voice of the Father speaks and they show, look, we're all connected here. You're my beloved Son, the Father says, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus knows what it's like to be in relationship because the Trinity has always been in perfect relationship, three persons and one God forever and for all eternity. And so when we're accountable to one another, we just simply bear the image of what he already is. Encouragement. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. All right, go do the mission. Go do your thing. Go for it. No. He said to his disciples to persevere, to take his teaching into the world. And behold, he told them, I am with you even to the very end of the age. We're going to do this, guys. That's what he said. Strategy? Everything that's unfolding in the book of Acts, everything is is unfolding because of Jesus' strategic plan. Acts chapter 1, you will receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Everything that's happening is happening because it was Jesus' strategic plan. Suffering? Jesus certainly knows what that's like. He told his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Generosity? Paul writes to the Corinthians, encouraging them to be generous, to be great givers, to help other people in their need, and he tells them how to do it. He says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see how you recognize, you see how it works? We can't be any of those characteristics of what a Christian is like until we first realize, understand, and rely upon the fact that Jesus is, first of all, all of them for us. Cecilia Burnham lives in Stockholm, Sweden. She suffers from a rare disease called prosopagnosia. It's commonly known as face blindness. In other words, people who suffer from this rare condition have no ability to recognize faces. They don't they, they aren't able to connect a person's face with, with, with who they are. And so what it means is that Cecilia can barely, she can't even recognize her own mother's face, can't pick her out in a, in a photograph. It meant that she's had throughout her life incredible difficulty keeping friendships because whenever she sees a friend, she doesn't know that it's a friend. She just walks right by him. It's hard to keep friends when you ignore them. And yet, While there's no known cure, sufferers of this condition, they figure out how to cope. They learn how to recognize people by other means. They they, they recognize how they walk or they recognize their voice. In John chapter 10, Jesus said that the sheep know his shepherd, not by his face, but by his voice. They listen. He told them that, that he was the ultimate shepherd, that he was the good shepherd and that for his sheep he would lay down his life. And then he told them that he had other sheep that were not of this Jewish fold. And then he had to go and he had to get them also. He was talking about the Gentiles. He was talking about the people of the world. He was going to go after them and they would know his voice. It's how the people in Antioch knew these people were different. Knew that they were different because they heard through them the voice of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they were called Christians. They were called Christ ones because they spoke first and primarily of Christ. The voice of Jesus spoke loudest through them. And in the same way, it must speak the loudest through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being in the person of Jesus and sending this Jesus to be what we cannot be, to do what we cannot do and to give us the example and the strength, the encouragement and the power to be able to follow You well. Lord, we do pray that in our lives we would be recognizable as Christians because people hear through us Your voice. We pray, Lord, that we would have boldness. We pray that we would have humility, that we would have kindness and love and generosity, that we would submit to Your sovereignty, that we would suffer with hope and that we would do it because you are worthy and because of what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.